Hello there, you Awakening Wonders on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download your podcasts. We really appreciate you, our listeners, and want to bring you more content. We will be delivering a podcast every day, seven days a week. Every single day, you'll get a detailed breakdown of current topics that the mainstream media should be covering. But if they are covering, they're amplifying establishment messages and not telling you the truth. Once a week, we bring you in-depth conversations with guests like Jordan Peterson, RFK Jr., Sam Harris, Vandana Shiva, Gabor Mate, and many more. Now enjoy this episode of Stay Free with Russell Brand. Remember, there's an episode every single day to educate and elevate our consciousness together. Stay free and enjoy the episode. Hello there, you Awakening Wonders. I hope you're having a wonderful time. I hope you feel free and liberated and ready to get educated because today on the show we have Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Chris Hedges. You can find his work at chrishedges.substack.com and you can order his book, Our Class, colon, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison Now. We'll post those links in the description for you. Chris Hedges, if you don't know, is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who's been on the scene for a long time. In the old days when the legacy media was less corrupted, he worked at places like the New York Times and has been in war zones reporting on the front line. And when he talks about something like the current conflict in the Middle East, he has a very particular and specific opinion that has to be respected because it's grounded in real experience. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's absolutely fantastic and informative and difficult. And I hope that I took advantage of the wisdom available with Chris Hedges. And I hope that wherever you stand religiously, ideologically, and in terms of your own affiliations, you find it a valuable and informative conversation. Thank you for joining us, Chris Hedges. Chris, the the global events that are defining the news narrative currently is an area in which you are an expert. You've recently been reporting for Al Jazeera in that region. I wonder how much of uh, the US media's portrayal of the conflict we can take at face value. And then I wonder if you could take that into, say, if you, I was going to take this almost uh, stumbling block by stumbling block. And the first one uh, that comes to mind is how often at the forefront of reporting people say, how can you ever negotiate with Hamas, whose stated agenda is the annihilation of the Jewish people? So uh, if we could just start with the sort of general overview of how much of the US media's uh, coverage we can trust and lead to that sort of certainly one of the points that I see mostly utilised to legitimise a unique stance in this conflict. Well, it's a one-sided version of events uh israeli uh the media is completely uh uh out of sync with popular opinion most uh americans uh including 53% of republicans want a ceasefire i think that runs up to almost 80% among democrats uh biden's base among younger, vo- younger voters has cratered over this uh the israelis as usual have made it extremely difficult for reporting to get out by cutting off the internet, cutting off cell phone service, very courageous Palestinian journalists, uh, 43 of whom have been killed. And I can assure you, having spent seven years covering Gaza and the Israel-Palestine conflict, many of those were targeted, including the family, uh, the entire family of the Al Jazeera correspondent, uh, because they don't want it. Uh, the, what's happening getting out. And, I, and you have to put it in perspective uh, which I think a lot of people don't have. I was in Sarajevo uh, for the New York Times covering the war uh, when it was being shelled by three to 400 uh, shells a day, constant sniper fire, 
Now, that was four to five dead a day and two dozen wounded a day. And I don't want to minimize what happened in Sarajevo. I mean, almost 30 years later, I still have nightmares about it. Uh, but you have to juxtapose that with what's going on in Gaza, which is really saturation bombing. Unlike anything we've seen, I think you'd have to go back probably to the war in Vietnam, maybe Chechnya. I didn't cover Chechnya, but colleagues of mine did. And uh, the Russians were also very ruthless there. But we're talking about, on many days, hundreds of dead, uh, over 5,000 children. Uh, so the scale of the attack. And I think that's not uh, transmitted to the American public and most of the rest of the public. Uh, Hamas is demonized. Uh, Hamas is a resistance organization. That's not to excuse the war crimes that Hamas carried out on October 7th. And I consider firing the rockets, which these rockets are homemade, manufactured, uh, you know, don't actually can do much damage. There have been some Israeli fatalities, but firing rockets indiscriminately uh, on a civilian population is also classified as a war crime. Uh, however, we have to then look at the, uh, Israel calls it mowing the lawn, uh, that is using its attack aircraft, its heavy artillery, its naval guns, its tanks to shell uh, a largely defenseless population. Remember, the Palestinians do not have an army, they do not have a navy, they do not have uh, mechanized units, uh, they don't have tank brigades, they don't have an air force, uh, and you can't call this a war. Uh, it is uh, more akin to murder, uh, slaughter, genocide. I don't think the word genocide is inappropriate, given the fact that Israel has cut off water, uh, food, fuel, electricity, uh, and has obliterated most of northern Gaza. Over 700,000 Palestinians are now homeless. Uh, they have been forced to flee to the south, many being attacked as they flee, and then are attacked in the south, in Hanayunis, a city I know well. So. Um, the, the, the scale is not being appropriately uh, covered in, in terms of the press. And of course, it's this cartoonish vision of good and evil, black and white, uh, democracy versus terrorism, all of which is fatuous and untrue. Uh, now, before the next question, Chris, we do have to leave YouTube for free speech reasons, which you will be aware of, having previously been on Russia Today, which has now been banned from the internet in many regions. So if you're watching us on YouTube, click the link in the description right now to see the rest of this brilliant conversation. I recognise for many of you, some of the things we're discussing will be at odds with your own perspective. But here we like to welcome a variety of informed opinions that we may understand the world better. And I will offer you one further time. If you are directly involved or ideologically involved in this conflict, I have complete respect for your views. But my strongest view of all, above all others, is that unless we find a way to unite with one another, we will have no chance at preventing, arresting or stopping the march of global elites to dominate, control and destroy the world that we hold so sacred. See you over on Rumble in a second. Click the link in the description. Um, so, Chris, Chris, I want to ask you, because I've had people on the show that have you know, taken the direct contrary position about, here are some of the points that, you know, that we will continually hear. 
you can't negotiate with Hamas when their stated credo is the annihilation of the whole Jewish population. I've heard people say that even the chant from the river to the sea is a kind of a, a genocidal lyric. Um, certainly, there, uh, it's interesting because we're seeing sort of cent a kind of an inversion of censorship. We're starting to see the left now again complain about being censored when they try to talk about pro-Palestinian uh, uh, narratives, stories, ideas. Uh, how do you cover the world First aspects of the, shall we say, the the opposing view, and I would say that the the, the, the October the seventh attacks were unprecedented evil. People would say like the you know baby murders, Holocaust survivors executed, um, you know like gory and graphic detail. But you know that's a sort of an editorial choice that people can make in in such cases, and 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 explicitly and specifically Hamas's sort of credo how do you how do you move beyond those kind of sticking points or stumbling blocks well the fact is Israel has negotiated through the Egyptians with Hamas for years uh, Gaza is an open air prison in essence a large concentration camp uh, Palestinians 2.3 million are unable to leave or enter the uh, many of the people who burst through those barriers on October 7th had never been outside of Gaza uh, and while I agree that there were egregious atrocities and war crimes that were committed against the Israelis, again, one has to put it into context uh, that uh, when you, and I, and I covered uh, Gaza for many, many years, when you treat people with that kind of cruelty, when you humiliate them, when you make it impossible for them uh, to work. Um, there's no uh, huge unemployment among the youth, something like 50%. Most are uh, dependent, most uh, Palestinians in Gaza are dependent on UNRWA, on, on UN aid. Uh, when you use uh, and you take the March of Return, they use snipers and uh, shells to kill nonviolent demonstrators. Uh, this engenders, of course, a very understandable rage. Now, to understand is not to condone, and I'm not condoning. Uh, but if you look at rebellions, look at Nat Turner, when uh, the slave revolt, Nat Turner and his band uh, uh, in, in, during uh, the antebellum South, they killed every white that they saw. Go back and look at the Haitian uh, uprising against the French in, in Saint-Dumain. Uh, the French planners were uh, brutally tortured and uh, killed, as C.L.R. James documents in his great book, uh, Black Jacobins. Um, that is... Uh, an understandable rage on the part of the oppressed. That's what happens when you treat people with that kind of barbarity, the barbarity that is visited upon them, they visit on others. And again, I'm not condoning it, but I think we have to put it in context and understand it. So the, the line that Hamas has within its charter, the destruction of Israel, this is true. However, uh, it is belied by the fact that for many, many years there have been uh, direct negotiations or indirect negotiations through Egypt with the Israelis on, on ceasefires and all sorts of other issues. And of course, there were negotiations through Qatar uh, with, for the expected release of the hostages. Uh, so it's just not true that, and, 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 and Hamas is, it is a resistance organization. It functions the way resistance organizations in the past have functioned. Uh, it it, it replicates the uh, kinds of activities, including the violence of past. I mean, even in the French Revolution, uh, the heads of aristocrats were put on pikes and carried, you know, through the streets 
of Paris. There's a very, and I covered revolutions, a very dark side to once that violence is unleashed and, and that rage is given expression through violence. But again, I think when we talk about the press, there's no context uh, at all. In terms of the chant, the river to the sea, well, the Israelis have decided to make a two-state solution impossible. Why? Uh, because they have seized uh, 60% at least of the West Bank uh, through uh, Jewish settlements and closed roads and uh, military zones and everything else. And that chant from the river to the sea, I think, is an expression, which I support now, of one person, one vote, uh, that uh, uh, the only way out of this morass, 75 years of it, is uh, a democracy and the abolition of a theocratic state, whether that's Jewish or Muslim or anything else. I don't see how the chant, the river to the sea, is genocidal. A, a chant that is genocidal is death to Arabs, uh, which is what's chanted at uh, soccer matches in Tel Aviv. Chris, the, 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 uh, the, uh, is it true that Hamas have been historically funded in ways that are surprising and unusual in much the same way, uh, though with sort of obviously greater consequence that the Democrats had kind of, um, what did they call it, like Pied Piper strategies to support Republican candidates that they would uh, prefer to face or to bias the public perception of the Republicans as a, a movement that's further to the right and more... Uh, should we say populist than uh, than otherwise might happen without the support of these candidates? Is Hamas uh, ever been the recipient of funding that's uh, be, you know, put simply Israeli? And also, how like when you're having these, uh, you know, it's, this is probably probably more relevant than ever before. We exist in these spaces where it's very difficult to even get. Uh, the, the opposing perspectives to come together. Like I, when I was most recently having a conversation with someone who had the contrary view to you, like they were saying, there have been numerous attempts to negotiate. Yasser Arafat had an opportunity for a deal. The two-state solution has been suggested many times. So on one hand, I'd like to say, is it is part of Hamas's origin being, has Hamas been inflated or funded in ways that uh, uh, were to um, tactical and strategic and a deliberate attempt to destabilize that region. That's one part of my question. And the other part of my question is, uh, are you, if you were taking the sort of perspective of your opponent, would you highlight uh, potential deals that have been offered previously that have not been taken up by, I don't know, the PLO or former incarnations of uh, the current resistance movement, to use your phrase? Right. So Hamas was from the beginning. So Hamas came out of the Muslim Brotherhood. In Egypt, it is a creation, uh, and the first leaders of Hamas. I knew uh, Rantisi, one of the heads of Hamas, until the Israelis assassinated him. I used to have dinner at his home. I knew his wife, who was just killed a couple weeks ago by the Israelis. Uh, they came out of the Muslim Brotherhood, and Fatah was a secular revolutionary movement. And so, when I started covering uh, Gaza in the late 1980s, uh, it was noticeable that the Hamas. Uh, militant group, which was very small, uh, was not uh, swept up in the mass arrests. Israel occupied Gaza at the time. That the, all the focus was on Fatah. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu followed this strategy where he allowed Qatar, uh, and I was just in Qatar, uh, to uh, fund Hamas uh, because he saw uh, those divisions within the Palestinian uh, uh, diaspora, in the Palestinian community useful in terms of 
uh, splintering power. So uh, yes, Hamas was, this was a strategy that of course has failed uh, miserably, uh, but the, the Palestinian Authority really functions as a colonial police force. It is completely under the control of Israel. It has very little popular support, including in the West Bank. Uh, and this notion that the Palestinian Authority is somehow going to uh, administer Gaza is farcical. Um, you know, initially, uh, the United States reached out to Egypt to see that after this devastation, would Egyptian security forces go in and occupy Gaza? Egypt obviously uh, refused. So yes, uh, this was a misguided policy. It reminds me of what happened in Syria when uh, the White House got this uh, ridiculous idea that they were going to fund quote-unquote moderate rebels. And then, of course, ISIS and al-Qaeda and all these groups just crossed the border into Syria, uh, and we ended up bombing the very people we armed. So it's very similar to that terrible, terrible miscalculation. So yes, uh, uh, Israel, from the beginning, nurtured, fostered Hamas, and Netanyahu in particular. There, there's statements by Netanyahu uh, talking about uh, the support for Hamas being uh, an effective tool to fracture Palestinian power. What about the uh, deals thing that I mentioned uh, in, in the mix with that question, oh, Chris? Oslo? Look, the, uh, the Oslo Accords, I covered the Oslo Accords, so I, I reported on them uh, for the New York Times. Um, the Oslo Accords were designed, so I, uh, this, the, they, this was driven by Yitzhak Rabin. Uh, Yitzhak Rabin, because of the Oslo Accords, was uh, hated by the Israeli right, in particular AIPAC and the uh, Zionist or Israel lobby in the United States. Uh, when he was running against Bibi Netanyahu, I covered that election, uh, they pumped tons of money into the Netanyahu campaign. Netanyahu is a creation of the right-wing Zionist movements. Remember, he speaks uh, fluent English. He went to MIT and lived outside of Philadelphia. Uh, so uh, Rabin was detested. And at the Netanyahu rallies, and I was there, uh, Rabin was dressed in, a Nazi, as a, in an effigy in a Nazi uniform and burned. Uh, people chanted death to Rabin. At one point, Netanyahu walked in front of a mock funeral for Rabin. And then, of course, Rabin was assassinated by a ex Jewish extremist and a follower of Netanyahu. And Leah Rabin, Rabin's widow, uh, to the day she died, uh, blamed Netanyahu and his supporters for the murder of her husband. So the whole uh, Netanyahu is a creation of this right wing, and I encourage all of your viewers to watch The Lobby. Uh, it, it, they did, uh, Al Jazeera did an undercover, sent a very courageous uh, kid inside the lobby with a hidden camera, the, the Zionist or the Israel lobby, both in the UK. That was broadcast on Al Jazeera. And then they did a, another one in the United States, and Israel put enough pressure on Al Jazeera so that it wasn't broadcast. But you can watch pirated copies on Electronic Intifada, I think, has put it up. Uh, but uh, you see the power of the lobby. I mean, they're just putting a hundred million. They just announced APEC's putting a hundred million dollars to defeat uh, AOC and the other uh, Ilhan Omar and the other members who have called for a ceasefire. They have tremendous reach. So uh, Rabin uh, was was detested and hated because of Oslo. Uh, but Oslo was, I, I think, I think Rabin's. There was a good and a bad side to Rabin. The good side was that he realized that the occupation was poisoning and destroying his country, and it had to end. The bad side 
is that he thought that by withdrawing, he could create a quisling, in essence, colonial force, uh, which is, was embodied in the Palestine Authority that would do the bidding of Israel. And that's what Mahmoud Abbas does. Uh, Arafat, for all, and I knew Arafat very well, Arafat's, uh, for all his quirks, and he had many of them, uh, nevertheless drew a line. He was not willing to be an Israeli puppet, and I think there's very strong evidence he ended his life under house arrest that the Israelis poisoned him to death. I think that's not conclusive, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that I think uh, leads those of us who knew him and covered it to believe that that's what took place. Um, so uh, the Oslo Accords were never viable in terms of establishing uh, an actual an independent Palestinian state, because remember, Israel controlled the borders. And by controlling the borders, they don't, for instance, in Gaza, they don't occupy Gaza, but because they control the borders, they control what goes in, what goes out. Uh, and that was true before October 7th. Uh, and they could shut everything down in an instant, uh, including, as they have done now with this horrific assault on Gaza, the, the water supply, the uh, the electricity, the power plants, um, uh, along, of course, with, with food. I mean, people were seeing serious cases of malnutrition. Uh, th there's no sanitation anymore in Gaza. Uh, many people have been pushed to the south, uh, most of the north, 1.1 million Palestinians. And we must remember Gaza is very tiny. It's only 20 miles long and five miles wide. It's one of the most densely packed places on the planet. And, and you mentioned, Russell, about Hamas atrocities, and there's no question that there were horrific atrocities that were carried out, uh, but it's also an atrocity to drop 2,000-pound bombs in the middle of refugee camps. Uh, and and uh, I, I'm not absolving Hamas, but the atrocities that are carried out, I would call state terrorism on Israel, are even, I think at this point, more, even more egregious than what Hamas carried out on October 7th, certainly in terms of numbers. I mean, 5,000 dead children. Yes, I acknowledge that there are discrepancies in reporting the types of violence that are conducted perhaps by groups, regions, organisations that are disempowered versus imperial power. It's a commonly, it's sort of common parlance to think of drone, drone strikes as being very bespoke and rational and targeted and discerning and and what are even even to use the term acts of terror as to be as being hysterical and sort of wild and and there are evident and clear discrepancies it's often argued that this issue is undergirded by anti-semitism even with regard to the way that reporting on other deaths, Arab deaths in that region, for example, in Syria, as a result of the sort of conflicts that have taken place there in the last couple of decades or whatever, there is no, there's not the same appetite to target the perpetrators of those kind of acts of violence. Where is anti-Semitism uh, a relevant framing for issues in this region and where is it not relevant? It's not relevant when we equate the policies of the Israeli government uh, or criticize or attack the policies of the Israeli government and therefore are accused of anti-Semitism. Israel is a state, and I will just throw in that I graduated from Harvard Divinity School. 
I spent a lot of time reading the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and the idea that the Israeli state represents the, the best of Jewish theology, of the Torah, of the prophets. I mean, the, Judaism, like Christianity, these were religious systems that were written by oppressed peoples with an acute understanding of what it meant to be oppressed uh, and, and the defense of the oppressed. Uh, and of course, any state is about the projection of power. Uh, so uh, just as I would not consider Israel to be an expression of uh, Judaism, I don't consider Saudi Arabia to be an expression of Islam. Uh, theocratic states use, misuse religion to sacralize temporal power. Um, we, are, we are now on the cusp of an election soon within a year in the United States. Trump has filled, he doesn't have any ideology of his own, but he's filled his ideological void with the Christian fascism. I don't use that word lightly. I spent two years writing about the Christian right in my book, uh, Christian Fascists, uh, the, the uh, American Fascists, the Christian Right in the War to Destroy America. I, I spent um, months and months with these people and they are heretical. They have uh, used the Christian religion to sacralize the worst aspects of imperialism and capitalism and, and white supremacy as well. Um, so uh, that is the dividing line and Israel works very, very hard uh, to erase that dividing line. So any criticism of Israel, any criticism of its, its policies, especially towards the Palestinians, uh, then is equated with anti-Semitism. And we have seen now groups uh, at universities, uh, for Students for Justice for Palestine, Jewish Voices for Peace, are being shut down and silenced because of very powerful donors, University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, where I went to school. Uh, these are and, and it's very um, counterproductive because what by essentially uh, attacking legitimate criticism of a state and branding it anti-Semitic, um, you are uh, diluting or minimizing the real anti-Semitism, which of course is there. I mean, racism exists. Uh, it exists. I see it in the coverage. I mean, when Palestinians are discussed or reported on, they're not individualized. They're a mass. They're a dehumanized mass. When we hear about Israeli victims, they're teachers, they're doctors, they're peace activists, whatever. But that doesn't happen. There are no doctors, teachers, taxi drivers, poets. They're just Palestinians. I mean, the, the language the press uses, the, the, the failure to use apartheid. Israel is an apartheid state. You won't see that, that word in the mainstream press. The act of genocide, when you seek to exterminate uh, and certainly cutting off food, fuel, water, and, and the kind of saturation bombing that we have seen uh, against the Palestinians, uh, when you seek to exterminate a whole or part of a people, that is an act of genocide. So that is another word you won't hear. So a lot of it is the, uh, the failure on the part of the press to use appropriate language and uh, driven by the Israel lobby, this very pernicious tactic of essentially branding any critic of Israeli policy as anti-Semitic. Does anti-Semitism exist? Of course, it exists and it must be fought, uh, like all racism. But criticizing Israel is not anti-Semitic. What unique strategic role and function does Israel have in that region? How is it significant to American and in particular American 
corporatist and military industrial complex interests? And is there a counterpoint to that strategic value that might be deployed by other players on the geopolitical stage? For example, Iran, Russia, etc. Right. So Israel has pushed America into all sorts of military fiascos that are in the interest of Israel, but not in the interest of the United States, the Iraq war being at the top of the list. Uh, there's been heavy lobbying by Netanyahu to go to war with Iran. That is not in America's interest. Um, it is an Israel's interest to weaken the power of its neighbors. Um, so the Israel lobby has been quite effective in pushing the United States. I mean, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, was a cheerleader for the war in Iraq and is very close to Israel. Uh, so uh, I, I wouldn't say that the interests converge. In fact, uh, and, and the Pentagon was really has traditionally been the wall that has blocked the United States from carrying out a war with Iran, that Bibi Netanyahu very much wants to take place. Now, of course, this uh, uh, conflict in Gaza has brought him closer to that uh, goal because the U.S. has deployed aircraft carriers and fleets off the per in the Persian Gulf, which is a threat to Iran, and they have uh, fleets, uh, a fleet in uh, the Mediterranean, which is a threat to Hezbollah, which is uh, the Iranian proxy. Uh, so in many ways, uh, Netanyahu and the Israeli government uh, has traditionally uh, uh, been able to manipulate the United States into doing uh, the, the, its, its dirty work, which are not in the interests of the United States. Um, in terms of other players, well, yes, the, the, key, the key player is Iran, uh, and uh, that is why Israel has bombed the airports twice in Damascus and Aleppo, because that's, those are the transit, arms transit points uh, to uh, Lebanon, because Lebanon is a creature of uh, Hezbollah, is a, excuse me, is a creature of Iran. Uh, and, and Hezbollah has, unlike the Palestinians, has the ability because of an arsenal of fairly sophisticated rockets to inflict pretty serious damage uh, on Israel should it open up a second front. Up until now, there have been, uh, you know, I would characterize them as relatively minor border clashes along the north. Uh, I think Hezbollah does not want a war with Israel. I don't think Iran wants a war with Israel. I don't think Syria wants a war. Uh, with Israel, but once you open that Pandora's box of war, and I covered many conflicts, uh, it controls you, you don't control it. So things can go horribly, horribly wrong. In terms of Israel's power within the international community, that comes through its arms sales. So Israel sells weapons as the 10th largest uh, uh, weapons uh, dealer in the planet, I think $12.5 billion in sales last year, and it sells to the most retrograde governments in the world. It was a fervent supporter of the apartheid regime in South Africa when I covered the war in El Salvador and Guatemala in the 1980s. Israel was supplying weapons and napalm uh, to uh, the Salvadoran military and to Rios Mont, who was carrying out genocidal campaigns in the highlands in Guatemala. Uh, the 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 uh, genocide in Rwanda, the, the, most of the fighters were carrying Israeli weapons in Nagorno-Karabakh with that ethnic cleansing of 80% of ethnic uh, uh, Armenians. The, that was, they were supplied with Israeli 
uh, weapons. Uh, they, they don't care who they sell to. Uh, and that gives them tremendous power because the arms industry in many ways drives the policy of the United States of industrialized nations. And I think that's why you have seen governments in Europe and of course in Washington uh, sign on for this uh, genocide uh, because of that kind of, that's a kind of secretive world, um, uh, but a powerful one. Uh, and Israel is in that club. And remember many of the, like the Pegasus spyware uh, that was used to track my friend Jamal Khashoggi the Saudi journalist who was uh, went into the uh, consulate or the embassy in Ankara and was cut up. I mean, we haven't found his body by the Saudi regime. That's an Israeli creation. Um, many of the, the Israel uses the Palestinians as a laboratory to test its weapons, and they will actually, when they sell these surveillance facilities, drones. They're one of the biggest. Uh, producers of drones, militarized drones, when they sell these weapons ab abroad, they call them quote unquote battle tested because they've been used against the Palestinians. I mean, Israel has uh, face recognition software where every single Palestinian, and they were did not, of course, give their consent, is within that system, is immediately able to be identified. And this kind of uh, surveillance technology is sold around the globe and used uh, against dissidents. It's used against anybody uh, that any state, including the most despotic states, see as a threat, including, including of course, journalists. Uh, like, it appears that you, in a sense, is this true, uh, see Israel as the more influential or, or even the, the, the more dominant partner in their relationship with the United States. But even in terms of weapon sales, uh, like my assumption would be that the United States are far uh, more profligate and successful in that industry. Uh, so it, are you suggesting that it's Israel that drive these policies, uh, but the, 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 where there is a necessary colla necessary collaboration between the United States and Israel, whether that's you know through funding, favorable reporting, many of the topics that have been covered in our conversation so far today. If so, what does that suggest about a broader global uh, agenda? Because I've always assumed that the dominant partner in any relationship between the United States and another nation will be the United States. That will be ultimately their interest that will be served. And, uh, and my uh, sort of broad, or, or, albeit somewhat shallow, certainly compared to yours, assumption w uh, would be that, uh, or assessment would be that the United States have an appetite for a unipolar hegemony to continue and that the war between Ukraine and Russia is a way of draining Russia. The potential South Seas wars have uh, comparable objectives there. And that ultimately this ascending Middle Eastern conflict will be used to facilitate the kind of uh, institutional powers that lurk behind the um, edifice of uh, American democracy. But the, in your response to the last question, it seems to me that you're suggesting that it's Israel that are authoring sort of current events, at least. Is that what you feel and understand? Yes, but let me first address the issue of the arms industry. You're right that the American arms industry is larger, but the American weapons and surveillance technology industry is completely integrated with Israel. Uh, and uh, 
and, and they work closely together. Remember, the intelligence services are completely integrated. Um, so there, uh, in many ways, Israel is not necessarily competitor, competitor although uh, because of the $3 billion a year that we give to Israel, uh, one of the ironies is that the American aid largely built uh, that technology and arms uh, uh, industry that has now uh, uh, become so large within Israel. In terms of the American political scene, yes, you cannot defy the power of the Israel lobby. Uh, it's impossible. And Netanyahu acts with tremendous arrogance towards Biden. There's an animus uh, among many Democrats, in particular Obama, because Obama was pushing through his Iran nuclear deal, uh, which Netanyahu didn't want. Uh, and Netanyahu got himself invited to the U.S. Congress, uh, bypassing the White House, uh, to denounce uh, the Iran nuclear deal uh, and a a attempt to, to sabotage it. Uh, uh, you know, essentially uh, setting himself up as an antagonistic to the Obama administration. Uh, they much prefer Trump. I look at Netanyahu and, and the Israel lobby as a kind of albatross around Biden's neck. Well, they don't care if they bring Biden down. In fact, when Biden was vice president, he went to Jerusalem and denounced the call for a halt on the expansion of settlements on the very day he was there, Netanyahu announced the expansion, I think it was 1,500 or something new settlements. So uh, there, there is a tremendous, I mean, he's not a very pleasant figure, Netanyahu. Also, no, I knew him when he was the deputy foreign minister. He was very arrogant, amoral, cynical. Um, but yeah, the uh, Israel lobby is extremely powerful. As I mentioned earlier, Russell, they uh, just announced that they're putting $100 million to defeat a handful of House candidates because uh, they're calling for a ceasefire, and because, especially with Talib, is really stood up for Palestinian rights. So that yeah, you can't defy them. You defy them, it, and and if you do defy them, it's not a matter of them withdrawing tremendous amounts of financial support, but then they will use uh, the the money they have to mount campaigns uh, to defeat you. And 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 so yeah, the political system on both sides is hostage. Netanyahu could care less if Biden loses the election because they'd prefer Trump. Uh, Trump gives them even more than Biden. Uh, so it's kind of win-win for Israel. Um, but Biden is, you know, he may, but the, the, right now Trump's ahead in the polls. Uh, the, the, the Biden, by essentially uh, endorsing this uh, massive killing project, not just endorsing it, but giving Israel $13 billion to continue it, uh, this this is not politically good for Biden, it, it, but but Netanyahu doesn't care. If Biden goes, they get Trump. That's even better. Biden's support of Israel has been pretty consistent, enthusiastic, and historic. Uh, I think it's fair to use that term in terms uh, with Joe Biden, given his extraordinary extraordinary longevity. I, I but I feel, Chris, that when you're talking about, I, I want to understand how Israel are able to assert such what would seem to be um, atypical power, because my assumption would be that it's a relatively modern 
country, uh, like in, in terms of its, you know, sort of recent establishment in the, the, the 1940s, I mean, uh, whilst I, I completely acknowledge this, that there is an ancient land and the, their historic claims and all of, this, sort of the, the origins of that, you know, of the situation, I'm sort of not seeking to deny them. But, but when you talk about the, the, you know, the power of their lobby, the influence over American democracy, it seems that something anomalous is taking place. And I, I want to understand, like, sort of, we've... With, you know, with both available positions on this conflict, uh, it seems that there is a, a, a tendency to amplify its uniqueness, to regard it as a very sort of, you know, like when you talk to people that are pro-Israel, they say that, they, that, you know, all nations on the earth have, you know, these kind of industries and have, have a military and have a past. America has a colonial past. So does Britain, etc. And the atrocity. You know, they sort of, I suppose there's an attempt to normalise actions on, uh, and I know that sort of people in your position don't even like the, the use of the term both sides. Um, but I, I'm really just trying to understand what is so particular about this about this conflict when, in a sense, it would appear to... It would appear to me that it ought to be regionalised, contained. How has it become so defining? How has it had such an important and divisive cultural impact where people that are not directly involved in the conflict are taking strong positions? That spaces, cultural spaces, I mean, that were becoming unified, particularly on the sort of, say, libertarian right, are now themselves divided, uh, a kind of a, a anti-authoritarian peripheral movement, an anti-establishment movement, at least in media spaces uh, in, in the United States, are, are now divided once again around this issue. So what is it? What is it in particular about uh, about Israel that you're saying, that, you know, like, because when you say stuff like the arms industry or whatever, that's sort of a recognisable template. Is there something unseen, uh, uh, distinct and peculiar about, the, about this conflict and about this region that is allowing it to ha allowing the issue to become so disruptive and divisive no I, I think that in fact israel is a settler colonial project and it functions like all settler colonial projects uh and that's what we saw in south africa uh that's what we saw in kenya under the mau mau rebellion uh and israel is acting in the same way that other colonial forces, or if we want to consider the apartheid regime, the white apartheid regime colonial, other forces in other settler colonial project act. That, that's, that's really at the engine of what is driving this. So settler colonial projects from their inception are founded on lies uh, because they're, they have stolen the land. Uh, of an indigenous people, and those indigenous people uh, mount resistance to fight back. So Israel follows that template. Uh, and I think passions are so high uh, because uh, both sides recognize that this is an existential question. If Palestinian land is to be returned, remember, if you are Jewish and you are born in Brooklyn uh, and you don't speak a word of Hebrew, uh, and you've never been to Israel, you can fly to Israel and instantly get a passport. If you are Palestinian, and remember from, from the seventh century until 1948, the land of historic Palestine was Muslim. 
Uh, and if your family has lived in Haifa for generations, you're barred entry. Uh, so I think it's it, it, the, the way to understand what's happening in Israel is to look at settler colonial projects of the past. And what happens, because they constantly use force and violence as a form of control, they either buy people, attempt to buy people off, collaborators, that's what the Palestine Authority is, and if you can't be bought off, you're killed. That's what settler colonial projects do. Uh, but it, it doesn't work often, usually, over the long term, unless, of course, it's the United States, where 90% of Native Americans were, were, mur were killed. Uh, it, it doesn't work. It also happened in the, with the Patagonians in the south of Argentina, but they were all wiped out. And that, I think, is also an important historical template to remember, because what Israel is attempting to do is push all of the 2.3 million Palestinians over the border into the Sinai and Egypt, where they will never return, and they will then turn on the West Bank. Uh, and this isn't conjecture. You have to go back and look at the statements over many years of many of the ministers in the Netanyahu government uh, because they have endorsed this, they call it, they have euphemisms like transfer, but they have endorsed this kind of ethnic cleansing for a long time. They have their roots in the radical rabbi, Mayor Kahana, who I knew and covered, uh, was later assassinated. Uh, the difference was that when I was in uh, writing, covering Israel, uh, he was so unpalatable, Kahana. He was a racist and called for uh, the eradication of Palestinians, his party, the Koch party, was banned in 1994, um, but, but his heirs have taken control. Uh, and so there, you, 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 when, they, when they make these statements and they come out constantly that the Palestinians, Netanyahu called them the new Nazis, uh, there was this song that's been circulating about his, with Israeli school children singing uh, you know, about the, a song lauding the annihilation of the Palestinian people, you know, something that the Hitler youth would have sung about Jews, you take it very, very seriously. And I think that when we see Israel as a typical settler colonial project, then we understand its behavior, because at the end, uh, they uh, seek to carry out really genocide, massive amounts of force to eradicate the problem. Uh, that's what happened in Kenya. Uh, the British have still not dealt with this, of course, although King Charles was there. Uh, that's what happened in South Africa. Uh, and that's what happens in other settler colonial projects. And that's where we are. So I think that's the best way to understand Israel. Of course, you do have the aspect of the Holocaust, uh, which Israel, of course, has weaponized the Holocaust. Um, uh, but the Palestinians did not carry out the Holocaust. They had nothing to do with the Holocaust, although now they are, of course, condemned as Nazis. I see. So you, the paradigm you deploy is to see it as a settler colonial model. And then when you and that, that often has the type of dynamics that you're describing. But perhaps unique to this is the yes, the recent history of the Jewish people, in particular the Holocaust and the fact that that region is almost the interface between Western colonialism, uh, a, the counter-narrative opposed by Islam and post-Ottoman Empire, the, the post-Second World War and post-Ottoman Empire region, and perhaps is complicated further by the uh, the complex uh, by the complexities added because it is a resource-rich area that still seems to be 
central to the global economy and that is remains a highly disputed and contentious region because of the requirement for control over resources there. So I wonder in some kind of macro narrative, if such a thing can be uh, offered, that it's it's kind of important that it remains unstable and the scene of ongoing conflagration, that it's somehow beneficial to the kind of institutional economic economic global forces that are in a way transcendent of something as uh um, what do i want to say uh, almost um i want to say atavistic as uh, as national and religious interests no i i don't think the instability is beneficial because uh a war with iran would be catastrophic it would be viewed throughout the region as a religious war iran is shia 60% of Iraqis are Shia, uh, 3 million Shias in Saudi Arabia, uh, Bahrain, uh, so a huge Shia population in Lebanon. So no, it would be very, very dangerous. And I, and I think the United States is aware of that. They definitely do not want this to become a regional conflict, especially after two decades of the military fiascos that were orchestrated in Iraq, Syria, Libya, Afghanistan, um, and I think that uh, then, you know, just as I uh, understand Israel through the dynamics of a settler colonial project, I understand the dynamics of the United States through late empire. What happens in late empire? They're losing their influence, economic, political, that hegemony is breaking apart. And in late empire, this is true for all empires, they seek to regain that hegemony uh, through military force which plunges them into one military debacle after another, which is really the history of the United States going all the way back to Vietnam. Uh, I mean, this, this support for the wholesale slaughter in Gaza, it's going to take at least a decade for the United States to repair its relations with the Muslim world. I think the Muslims are what, one, I can't remember, 1.2 billion, or I can't remember the number, but I mean, a significant percent of the world's population and of course the global south because the global south is looking at this in utter horror well, you know where are, where is the rule of law where is the geneva where are the geneva conventions where is humanitarian law and that is a message that both israel and the united states is delivering to the global south and everywhere else the rule of law international law humanitarian law it doesn't apply to us it may apply to you uh, with, uh, you know, taking war criminals from the Rwanda genocide and putting them, it does not apply to us. And that is very, very frightening, because when you give that message to the rest of the world, uh, then if th their uh, assumption, their quite legitimate assumption, is that if it doesn't apply to you, it doesn't apply to us. And, and what, you know, the lifeblood of resistance movements, radical movements, uh, movements like Hamas are martyrs. Um, we have to look at Hamas as an idea. And uh, what Israel has done is essentially brutalize an entire new generation of Palestinians who will carry out acts. I mean, you know, all resistance movements are condemned as terrorists, uh, which doesn't mean that they don't commit terrorism. Uh, but if you don't have an air force uh, and you can't drop a 2000 pound bomb on a refugee camp, then you strap on a suicide vest. Uh, that's your air force. Uh, and this language of violence, this quid pro quo, state terrorism, which spawns militant terrorism, this is a death spiral. And for those of us, and I spent seven years covering Gaza, who were in there, we kept writing week after week, month after month, year after year, 
you can't keep brutalizing these people. This is not a policy that is any way going to contribute to stability or peace. In fact, it will do the opposite. Few people listened, and now here is where we are. So instability within the Middle East is dangerous. Uh, I think even Washington wants to prevent it. Unfortunately, the Netanyahu government, their wet dream is the uh, US war with Iran. Uh, and they have tried over and over and over. In fact, the, it was the after uh, 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 the Bush election, after uh, George W. Bush, at the end of his term, it, uh, when he was, a, so there was the dead period when he was a lame duck between November and January, Israel pushed very, very hard for a war. And, uh, and the, in the Bush administration and the Pentagon uh, refused. Uh, but this has long been on the agenda of Netanyahu, and that is very because Iran has the possibility to do tremendous damage to Israel. And remember, Israel is a nuclear power. I mean, it's it could really go very, very bad. I'm surprised that you see, again, like Israel as the senior partner. I'm not, you know, I'm just learning here. I'm here to learn. Uh, but like, uh, but like, uh, because it would seem to me that the, uh, the paradigm of the late empire obviously and by definition precedes the implosion or deterioration of a, of empire I'm, I'm trying to envisage what that would look like you know as a sort of a native of a former empire where it seems that out like the you know, former british interests were easily folded into a kind of secondary role in support of the ongoing american imperial project and it seems to me um you know that that, that the remains the role of britain on the world stage and I, I i again wonder about the validity of even this kind of uh, rubric chris when it's you know where do we place the uh, you know the new american century project you know, where it was sort of clear that uh, a war with you know kind of Syria, Iraq, etc. Many of the wars that have subsequently taken place, uh, but but Iran w w was on that list. So the you know the chief agitator being Israel, uh, you know, I'm, it seems surprising to me that that would be the dominant force that was able to determine outcomes when such evident and obvious power, even if, if as you say, and I'm certainly not querying it, America is an empire in decline. I, I, and also, I'm sort of curious as what as to what follows that. So, yeah, I, do, 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 are you saying that this is this cycle that we're experiencing it is the, the uh, sort of present decline of America? And I wonder how you see that being brought about and how immediate you imagine it uh, being. So, first of all, when you talk about Israel, we have to go back to groups like APAC. These are, you know, very right wing neocons. And they share a common world, a common ideology uh, with the neocons in the United States, people like Blinken and others. And, you know, Biden actually called for the invasion of Iraq five years before the war. Biden, is, his entire political career, he has been a puppet to these powers. He was one of the primary uh, forces that got us into Iraq. Uh, I don't think Bob Biden's very limited intellectually and recently probably even more limited intellectually. Uh, but nevertheless, he has been a servant to these forces. So uh, the, Israel has essentially wedded itself to the most retrograde right-wing forces in the United States. When, when Rabin was inaugurated as prime minister, he didn't invite AIPAC to his inauguration because he saw the Zionist or the Israel lobby in the United States as a political movement which was 
uh, uh, deeply antagonistic to himself. So it has a political orientation uh, that fits, uh, that is in sync with the very right-wing political orientation that Biden has served throughout his lifetime as a politician and is serving now. If you attempt to challenge it, and you can look at what's happening to uh, Rashida Tlaib and others, then the, the, you know, the boot of the Israel lobby will crush you. In terms of what is happening in terms of the twilight of empire, well, we don't make anything anymore in the United States except weapons, uh, many of which we use to s slaughter each other with. Uh, our infrastructure is falling apart. Uh, our, everything is becoming privatized. 60% uh, of Americans are living in pretty acute economic distress. Uh, and, you know, what happens with all empires is that they hollow themselves out from the inside. As Thucydides said at the death of the Athenian empire, the tyranny that Athens imposed on others, it finally imposed on itself. And that's what's happened. So the, the harsh tools of control on the outer reaches of empire, wholesale surveillance, militarized police, all of that is brought back into the heart of the homeland uh, to essentially crush dissent. And let's also, just as a caveat, a lot of these police forces in places like Ferguson were trained by Israelis. Uh, that, that's a big, also a big project within Israel, is training police forces in very brutal forms of crowd control, which we saw in places like Ferguson, backed up by military-grade equipment. And that's, of course, taken place in the United States. So the, it, it is, how does it die? It dies ultimately the same way the British Empire dies, and that's once the pound sterling no longer became the world's reserve currency in the 50s, the British economy went into a tailspin. Once the dollar, I'm not saying we're there yet, but once the dollar is no longer the world's reserve currency, the United States can't fund its empire. It's all funded on debt. It doesn't work. And that creates a tremendous contraction, uh, a terrible economic depression. Uh, and that's where we're headed. I mean, the, I mean, if climate change doesn't get us first. So uh, we are replicating the end of uh, empires, the way uh, Tainter writes about it in The Collapse of Civilizations. I think he looks at 24 different empires. It's military adventurism. It's essentially a military beyond control. Um, I mean, that's what Arnold Tonboy says is the death of empires is they can't control their military industrial complex. Uh, it becomes a state within a state, or as Alexander Berkman says, it becomes the enemy within, and that's precisely it. So we have to, Ukraine, Israel, remember, most of this money is not going to Israel, and it's not going to Ukraine, it's going to Raytheon, it's going to Northrop Grumman, it's going to the arms manufacturers. Uh, and, uh, um, and that's why we are in this horribly self-destructive cycle of permanent war, nobody can stop it. If with the in when we were discussing a moment ago the uh, the religious ideologies present within different relatively modern nations within that region, and you sort of broke down how it's primarily Shia Muslim populations, and that would escalate any conflagration to a religious war that would be uh, you know sort of impossible to envisage how that would be contained. Uh, it seems that we're similarly referring to ideological forces that are transcendent of the limited model that that nation can 
can uh, grant us, whether that's your description then of the magnetic power of the military-industrial complex. If so many of the resources are uh, finding their way into the military-industrial complex, then it becomes pretty clear whose agenda is directing these events. And uh, whilst the, I um, welcome, and it's very helpful to have the provision of the end-of-empire model and how that is, you know, there are identifiable traits playing out. It seems sometimes, Chris, that you're referring to ulterior trends that are, are only become visible if you have a geopolitical lens that can be applied, i.e. when you talk about the, you know, sort of the likelihood of the dollar being displaced, how that would lead to a, a true collapse. And I wonder if you feel that, that these are the kind of um, geopolitical yet financial conflicts that are being played out with these sort of relationships, that, that BRICS kind of stuff that's going on. I, I wonder how informative those uh, ulterior yet um, determining issues are. And, and if indeed they are, doesn't that diminish the authorship of, you know, the Israeli state that sort of determined the initial, uh, uh, guided the first part of our conversation, i.e. if Raytheon and the military industrial complex are making all the money, if this ultimately becomes sort of an end game for the American empire, uh, isn't that what is determining these wide scale uh, global conflicts, which are of which the, you know, the, what's happening in Israel is but one. We've mentioned Ukraine. We're seeing the escalation in the South Seas and stuff. Wonder what you think about that. Well, China, China. So, how does the United States cope with the rising economic power of China? It's through military threat, and that, of course, is very dangerous as well. Um, so, the the problem is, at the end of empire, you, you only speak one language, and that's the language of violence, because it's the only language you can speak anymore. I mean, that that is uh, essentially exemplified by the death of diplomacy. I mean, here we have uh, a wholesale slaughter and the United States is blocking veto, uh, vetoing resolutions in the UN for a ceasefire. I mean, this is insanity. It's utter insanity. It's not in anyone's interest for the United States to do this. So uh, uh, in, in terms of, I think we have to look at that, as I said before, that, that, that the relationship between Israel and the United States is one that on an intelligence level, on uh, in terms of arms production, these are uh, relationships that are completely integrated. That Israel does not function as a separate entity, uh, and uh, and so they're working as one. And and you know the United States is a settler colonial regime. I mean we we uh, bear a lot of the sins uh, which we have not dealt with. Israel certainly hasn't dealt with them, but we haven't dealt with them either as to who we are. Uh, we were a, a huge supporter of the apartheid regime in South Africa. In fact, of course, it was the CIA that located Mandela and got him arrested. Uh, you know, we will rewrite history afterwards. Mandela and Clinton can become best friends, but the United States was deeply antagonistic to the ANC. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the sad fact is that the Palestinians are powerless. And because they're powerless, at least within the circles of power, they're friendless. Nobody cares. Go back and look at the Armenian genocide, which was very public. People knew that it was happening. Anywhere between 600,000, 1.2 million Armenians. And, and, I, and there are many parallels. Uh, they were forced out of their villages and homes. They were 
attacked as they were being pushed into the the desert. They were they had no food or water. People died of exposure. I mean, a very similar playbook is now taking place in Gaza. I mean, the idea is to create a humanitarian crisis in southern Gaza that is so unsustainable and so horrific that essentially the international community agrees to push them out. That that's Israel's playbook. They've already I mean, they told Palestinians they had to go to, quote unquote, a safe zone, although they're attacked often when they go through these supposedly safe corridors. But now they're targeting the South Haniunis is right on the border with Egypt, is right on the border with Rafa. And they and you can't if you live in half of that city, according to the flyers that the Israeli Air Force has dropped, if you're a Palestinian, you're going to be attacked. You are. They're already bombing it. So they've already killed many people. They're attacking U.N. schools because that those are where displaced people who have nowhere else to go are uh, camping out. They've shut down the hospitals. I mean, this whole thing of Hamas command centers, they, they don't, they're not bombing these, destroying these hospitals because of Hamas command centers. Um, they're destroying them because they want no infrastructure and in particular a health infrastructure to exist. And almost all the hospitals, even the few of their 35 hospitals, Israel shut down at least 21. Of the ones that remain, they don't have antibiotics, they don't have oxygen. They, that what we're watching in real time is an act, an act of genocide. Uh, and the United States has signed on for that project. Uh, and they've signed on for a variety of reasons, but I would argue, and I, I think that, that this is, you know, having covered American politics for a long time, uh, the power of the Israel lobby is such that it is political suicide for a figure like Joe Biden to defy it. Not that he would anyway, but like my, my feeling is, is that when you describe these trends, it starts to seem like uh, the nation, notion of nation provides a layer of opacity that conceals relationships that, as you said, when it comes to secret services and financial ties, there's a degree of integration, in your words, between Israeli and American interests that it appears to me are ultimately the drivers of what actions take place, that the agenda is set by those interests, whether they are military industrial complex, whether they're like, what is it that seems to, it feels like there's a ghost, a phantom that moves through the observable, like we understand things in terms of territory and flags and religious ideology and sometimes even economics. But it seems that there is a, like, and you would obviously have a far better place to, to, uh, uh, to answer this question than I am. It would seem that there's something else that's moving between it like, you know, and beneath it. That, that, you know, that, that it's possible to envisage, like, you know, if, if you've got, you know, after some, in some kind of reverie, after some kind of epiphany, a, a, like a, a world where there could be a different agenda within Israel that would mean that, oh, you know, that there is a sort of an end to, uh, to use your term, apartheid and that that region is governed differently and democratically and non-violently. And, and, and you can, one can even sort of, you know, and I know we talked before in one of our, previously, Chris, we talked about the necessity for uh, spiritual values to prevail in these spaces. That if there were a kind of awakening, if there were a sort of essentially a non, the application of a non-materialist worldview, different solutions become available. But it seems like that uh, the, the, uh, the, the tiles of nature 
information are placed on top of what's happening at depth. And it's, and because it's so emotionally evocative, what it seems like a more likely outcome is the escalation of these conflicts rather than diplomacy. Because as you said, those things have been sort of taken off the board. So do you feel that, that you know, that as these, this, you know, it, God, I wonder if America is the last empire of this kind, possibly for reasons that are way beyond our control because of the potential devastation that could be wrought if the end of Empire game is going to be a militaristic one. And I wonder if you ever glimpse, Chris, if it's even possible for you to feel any kind of optimism when all of this seems so desperate. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a long-time newspaper reporter, so I, I don't sell hope. That's not my job. My job is to provide the clearest assessment of reality. That was certainly true in the wars that I covered. People who had very Pollyannish views about, uh, you know, their own immortality. I knew a few war correspondents who thought that way. They're not around anymore. Um, so we have to take a very sober look. I mean, you ask about forces. I mean, war has always been a business. That's nothing new. Uh, and it's a big business. Uh, and of course, it hides behind the flag and patriotism and all the other stuff to seduce you into supporting, uh, you know, this idea that you should send your teenage kids off somewhere to get killed. Um, but I think also coupled with that is the fact that we've undergone a corporate coup d'etat in slow motion, that all of the institutions that once made popular participation and democracy possible have either atrophied or died and, be ca and been captured by oligarchic power. Uh, and we see that in terms of the money-saturated elections in the United States, it's just a, a kind of institutionalized form of legalized bribery. Uh, and then the lobbyists, the corporate forces that elected these officials write the legislation. I teach in the prison. I was teaching and I teach through a college degree program through Rutgers University. I was in the prison last night. Look, most of those students that I teach wouldn't even be in there. But for Joe Biden and Bill Clinton and the omnibus crime bill, that more than doubled our prison population. 40% of the people in US prisons are, have never been convicted of physically harming another person. They get them under RICO laws and all sorts of other ridiculous stuff. So that's again, a, a process. You de-industrialize a poor urban neighborhood, a black body on the street is worth nothing to a corporation. If they're free, put them in a cage, they generate 50 or $60,000 a year in terms of the salaries for corrections officers. Everything within the prison is privatized. Uh, the money transfer service, the phone service, the commissary. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And their lobbyists are the ones in Washington writing the laws to ensure that the recidivism rate, which is 76% after five years, remains the same. That's just a small example of the corporate stranglehold that has essentially destroyed American democracy. We live, it's probably better, the political philosopher Sheldon Wolin calls it a system of inverted totalitarianism. That means we have the structures, we still have a Senate, we still have a House, uh, we still have elections, um, but internally corporations have seized all of the levers of power and their interests are not in our interests. And that is, I think, what you're getting at, yeah. Russell. <laughs> that is what I'm getting at, Chris. That is what I've been getting at. Thanks, man. Thank you for joining us for um, a conversation that's not at all easy, but it's incredibly informative. Thanks for giving us the benefit of your decades of experience on the front line. It's, it's fascinating and uh, I'm, I'm wonderful to hear you and to spend time with you. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, thanks for doing it.